This podcast is brought to you by Third Wave Water. Third Wave Water, it's what you use to make the coffee at home taste just as good as the coffee you get at expensive coffee shops. How does it work? Well, coffee shops spend thousands of dollars to make the perfect water for making coffee. But now for as little as 10 cents a cup, you can duplicate that magic at home. Third Wave Water has a patent-pending formula of minerals that when added to a gallon of distilled water, makes your coffee brewing magic. Listen, you know you've heard that the pizza and the bagels are the best in New York City. Well, the reason isn't because of some special magic dough. It's because of the water. The concept is the same here. The base of your coffee is the water. If your water isn't good, then it doesn't matter what type of beans you're using. No matter what, the coffee is still not going to taste as good as it could. If you start the base off with the perfect water, then you add the good beans, your morning cup of coffee will be perfection. Give it a try. All you have to do is go to thirdwavewater.com and use promo code CLATCH, that's K-L-A-T-C-H, for 10% off your first order. That's thirdwavewater.com, promo code CLATCH. Game of Thrones, oh my god. There's dragons. You gotta watch it. You see them, there's this fight scene. Winter's coming. Winter's coming. Winter's coming. Winter's coming. Mr. Kari's me. I cannot give you back your homes or restore your dead to life, but perhaps I can give you justice in the name of our king. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones Season 7 Prep. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today, that's what we're doing. Winter's coming and we have to prepare. Season 7 is called The Wars to Come, and we will talk about how that is absolutely going to be the major theme here. It will premiere on July 16th at 8 o'clock p.m., and we know the premiere will be 59 minutes long. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little about the information we have so far for season seven, which is admittedly not a lot. They're very tight-lipped about these things, but we do have some stuff to share. We have a few fun facts, and then we're going to break down the trailers we've gotten so far, the posters, and of course, the latest teaser trailer. I know a lot of podcasts are doing this, but we have to talk about it, right? And that will lead us very nice into our theories and predictions. So what do we know for sure? We know it's going to be seven episodes long. A change from all of our previous seasons that were 10 episodes. Yes, we were very disappointed last year when we heard that. And next season two, we want more, not less. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the same thing for season eight as well. And they've said this is due to the smaller amount of remaining story content and increased production value, as well as the time required to film episodes involving larger set pieces than in previous seasons. Well, for sure, there's going to be many, many extras. And of course, they'll digitally map it out where it looks like even more. But still, the past seasons will have a few battle scenes. And then the second to last episode will be an epic battle that took them a long time to do. But it seems like every episode, except maybe the first one, I think the first one's going to be mainly set up. Yeah, storytelling. Every episode's going to be like that. There's going to be epic battles from the north, from the south. Yeah, and if you think about how they have structured it, Up until now, each episode you bounce around between several locations, right? You always go back to the main areas of the north, King's Landing, the east, and what's happening with Danny. And each segment gives you, yes, the information, the narrative, what's going on between characters, 
but a big part of it had always been the scheming, the plotting for the Iron Throne. And as we guessed many seasons ago, that's going to become less and less important until finally, I think, in this season, it's going to be all but done with. As soon as they fight Cersei and get her out of King's Landing, we're going to come to the understanding that there's a bigger enemy here and the Game of Thrones doesn't really matter anymore. And that kind of cuts down on your structure for the episodes. If you don't have that to fall back on anymore and what the characters are doing amongst themselves, you're left with these really epic battle sequences and heroic moments. Yeah, I wouldn't say fall back on. That was their main concept. Like, that's what sold it, the storylines. Even though we wanted more dragons, more wolves, it was the storylines that always got us. I think it was a it was a combination of both for me because I, I know some people were drawn to that, the intrigue, the history, what was real about it. But then there were other fans that just wanted more fantasy, more mystery, more dragons. And a big part of what sold each year was their episode nine, their penultimate, which is where the major action battle sequences occurred. Oh, yeah, of course. But it was in result of all of the other episodes prior to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what kind of did it. It was like this crescendo and i'm not saying i'm not worried about this season because now season one through six is the crescendo and we have storylines that we know that are embedded in our souls and every fight will mean that much more to us Mm -hmm. also i have a feeling and this is out of thin air and i may change my mind tomorrow that yes we will start to see some wars for the crown but i don't think that'll even be resolved i think the north will become more prevalent the trouble in the north I'm not sure that we'll even have Danny fighting Cersei. I have a feeling that Danny's army, or at least most of it, will be there fighting Cersei while Danny's going up north. Yeah, that's what we said based on the trailer, and we are going to get more into that in a few minutes. But as of last season, we really thought season seven would start up with Danny attacking King's Landing. Surely this is the main pressing problem, and she has to deal with Cersei. But you're right, based on the trailers, every shot you see of Danny is her at Dragonstone. There's none of her fighting or riding into battle the way we imagined. So I definitely agree with you. I think she's going to send her army in. They're going to start fighting there. The focus is going to be more on the north. It's going to be on winter coming, moving all the way south into areas we never imagined. And I think you're going to have a bit of a repeat of history of the long night. And we'll wind up with season seven with all of our characters starting to come together, but with their backs up against a wall, looking like we're going to lose to the White Walkers. For sure. And we haven't seen too much of the White Walkers up until now, but I think this season will be the season where, of course, we're going to see a lot of White Walkers, and we're going to get to understand them more. We're going to know their strengths, their weaknesses. We know that they're the one king of the White Walkers. I don't. What's his name? The Night King. Night King. We know he's super badass. Remember that scene? after John fought him, and they're getting away on the boat, and the king just stands there with his arms out. I'm like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. And also staring at John, John. as though yeah. there was more personally there. And we've said repeatedly, we hope we get more backstory for the White Walkers, and especially the Night King. What happened to him? I mean, we know that from? the children created him. We know that much of it, but we haven't heard it from his side, if you will. Right. And I think you will get some of that and why he's so personally connected to John. Yeah, which we believe he's personally connected or he senses John's powers that we don't know about yet. Um, Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. But we said this, I think, last season, and you were just pressing on this. The main walkers, 
they were humans once. And I have a feeling they were important humans, whether family-wise or relatives. Something about them, if it interconnects that way, will make it even more intriguing. And they were turned into a weapon. And they must feel some kind of way about that. And that ties us back to all of the ancient history of Westeros, the children and the first men, the Andal invasion. I know that that hasn't been as big of a part of the TV show as the books, but it's definitely going to come back. I'm really looking forward to these dragons. And I know we should be talking about this later, but I got to get it out. I always said I want more dragons, right? (laughs) Yes. And we know there's going to be some epic dragon battles and they're bigger, they're stronger, they're scarier, they're sexier. (laughs) But I'm also concerned that we're going to lose some dragons. And that's the last thing I want. There's only three of them left. We believe that a dragon will be battling a walker. And this is based on clips, I think, from Time magazine, where they showed Amelia Clark acting and it's being filmed. And she's on the dragon. Mm -hmm. And there's fire and snow. It could have just been her battling up north. And of course, it's snowing up there. But if it's her battling one of the main White Walkers... It's got to be, right? That's going to be an epic scene. I have a feeling a dragon's going to die. It's Game of Thrones. They're not going to go through two more seasons and be like, all right, all the rest of the wolves are okay and all the dragons survived. There's no way. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that because we were so attached to the wolves and they started taking them from us. In fact, I still can't believe they took so many and we never got more into that. But I don't think they're going to take a dragon until we see the three rider plot line that we've been talking about that was so central to the books. They brought it up in the TV show. Yeah. They're really setting up that arc and, and we believe for John, Danny and Tyrion. And I think the point at which all three will ride will be to go into battle. That is going to be awesome. And so I think you're going to see that first before they take one from us. That also leads me to another question. <laughs> Randomly, how did dragons procreate. I was thinking that too. So we assume there there have to be two dragons, like with any other mammal, in order to procreate. Right. And that would mean if there's going to be a future for dragons, they can't take more than one. Otherwise, yeah. that's the end of the dragons. Maybe I don't know this or I just forgot. Is there a female dragon of the three? I don't believe we know if they're male or female. And in the ancient stories, they actually used to say that they could change sex. I was just going to bring that up. Are they? Will. I was going to say, are they like Jurassic Park? And they can change yes. their sex. Okay, so yeah. there we go. Incest with dragons. <laughs> it's the Targaryen way, right? Well, that's true. Wow. <laughs> well, coming back to the overall structure of this season seven. So yeah, we said it will be probably different than what we've looked at previously, where there's a mini climax around episode five, a massive event at episode nine, and an action-packed finale. The structure here is probably going to focus more on our core characters and conflicts, those big battles we talked about, more special effects, and hopefully more worldview shots. We know that they spent a lot of time, they waited on the filming so that winter could come to the areas that they're filming at. And I'm assuming a a big part of that is not just for snow, because they could make snow, right? It's because they're going to have these big panoramic shots where the background really needs to look like winter. Yeah, and it's just cheaper, like... If they had to do that constantly, reset and be like, reset the background, we need more <laughs> fake snow. Well, I guess it wouldn't look as real either. And speaking of filming, we know they will go back to Northern Ireland, Spain, and Iceland. Kit Harrington was speaking about this. This is a little off topic, and I won't dwell on it because we're not a political uh, podcast, but he was talking about his concerns when he was up there with global warming. Because in the location that they were filming, he actually filmed there before, and it's on top of a glacier. 
And he said that the glacier this time around was melted down. It wasn't even half the size oh, that it was no. before. And he said, this is the first time I saw it firsthand that this is a real thing, global warming. And he's really concerned. The article I read was very clever. The headline was something like, Kit Harrington isn't concerned about winter coming. So Get that you didn't global, know that's well, what they were talking about? Exactly. Well, global warming, so opposite of winter. Yeah. And his character talks about winter all the time. This is a stark family model that's finally coming back around. His famous quote from season six was, The war is not over, and, and I, I promise, promise you, friend, friend... The true enemy won't weigh out the storm. He brings the storm. Oh, and that is true. And he speaks about winter again in the trailer, which we'll discuss. I know we've gone over this. Let's just refresh it. The walkers can't survive in warm weather. Correct. Well, okay. This is a point of contention that we never really understand. Can they only go where it's winter or do they bring winter with them? In other words, if they went south while it was still warm, would they die? Could they not survive? Or is it just when they go south, winter will come with them? So chicken and the egg theory. Right. Is it getting colder because they're getting closer? Right. So we're not really sure. I mean, would it kill them? Maybe, maybe not. We believe the main element that's stopping them from going south right now is the magical protection that's on the wall. Now, who made this magical protection? The children of the forest. Oh, okay. They, they imbued the magic. It was the Night's Watch that actually built the wall, but the mm -hmm. children helped them to put these wards, whatever you want to call it, so the White Walkers could not pass. And now they're dead. Yeah, well, I, I guess this was their attempt to right their wrong, you know, because they created the White Walkers right. as weaponized people to fight against the invasion. And when they realized it was getting out of control, children, first men, they all had to come together to try to push them back. And I suppose the best solution they could come up with was to keep them separated. We don't know enough about the children at all. We, we had an episode where we talked about any knowledge we had gained so far back in season six. And I think that was really interesting because I find the children fascinating and we don't get a ton of background. The books talked about them a little more. If you'd like to hear that information, please go back and check out our season six episode. We don't know the specifics of their magic in general. We know that they have a communion with nature. They have some ability to influence or control nature. But I think we were hoping that the Three-Eyed Raven would get a chance to tell Bran more about this, and especially what was keeping the walkers away from the wall. Yeah. I think that's what's instilling such fear in us that Bran is going to cause a mistake by accident, uh, by entering the wall, passing it, somehow bring down that magic, just because it felt very ominous. He didn't learn what he needed to. So I know the Three-Eyed Raven is super powerful, one of the strongest green seers in all of the land. And I know the storyline wouldn't be as fun if this happened. It took so long for Bran to get there that he didn't have enough time mm -hmm. to teach him. Why didn't he warg into like a huge eagle? Well, first warg into Hodor mm -hmm. and speak through him, explain to Bran what's going on. And then warg into an eagle, just pick Bran up and fly him back to him. You bring up a lot of good points. I think we have to start with the different types of magic that exist in this world, and we could do a whole podcast on that because there are so many forms of magic. The TV show downplays that a lot. I think it's because they know there's a certain audience that is not as into the magic, extreme yeah. concepts of fantasy and magic. But we it was are. such a cool part of the books. Yeah, you need to read them eventually. This was part of what I found really awesome. They're too thick. <laughs> 
<laughs> once you get started, that would not matter. You would never want them to end. And then you'd be in my position where you're waiting forever, five years on the winds of winter to come out. But anyways, I digress. We talked a little bit last episode, these different kinds of magic that they have. For instance, the blood magic that the Magi practice that we witnessed with Danny, where she sacrificed essentially her baby to try to bring Caldrogo back to life. The Lord of Light magic that comes in seemingly unlimited forms, such as Melisandre giving birth to shadow babies and bringing people back to life. Part of what she does is to be able to change her form, not really her appearance, how people see her. So we know that she's an old lady, but she looks like a young woman because she has glamours on her. We don't know if that's specific to the Lord of Light or not. There's also two types of magic that seem to be used mainly in the North because we've seen Stark children have them, children of the forest. And a lot of people confuse these. It's green sight and warging. And they're not the same thing. Not all people can do both. In fact, only in very rare instances do we know about people that have both abilities. A green sight, which is supposedly more common, is where you experience prophetic dreams or visions. You can glimpse things of the future. We know that Bran has had that. Jojen used to have it. That's kind of what led them to Bran in the first place. Right. And we know that the Three-Eyed Raven had it. We assume the Three-Eyed Raven has the highest abilities out of everyone. But we never actually saw him warging, I believe. Now, warging is when... I think he was in the crows. He was seeing through the eyes of the crows. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that gets tricky because I don't know how much of that was connected to him being a part of the tree. Was it actually warging? We'll come back to that in a second. So in warging, you are able to enter the mind of an animal and experience and or control its actions. And that was seen primarily with the Stark children could almost all do that on some level with their wolves in the books. Right. We've really only seen that with Bran on the TV show. In the books, there was also other characters they talked about that could warg into many different kinds of animals. With Bloodraven, though... As he's getting on in years, he's slowly become part of this tree to the point that in the books, he's actually one with the tree branches are going through his body and coming in and out of his face. And it's really kind of weird. And we kind of feel like there's not much left of his human form at all. He's just kind of become one with nature. So I think that's a whole separate kind of magic there. They did say that Bran was going to become the next three-eyed raven. So we, we assume that his magic is just going to continue to increase and grow. Of course, yeah. And I think that that's going to be a really essential part of the battle. In fact, I think Bran is going to be responsible for the victory or defeat against the White Walkers. Wow. We've been seeing him as a very small part of the storyline. And it's like Danny and John, but there are warriors. Right? They're going to be out there on the front line fighting White Walkers. Yeah. But what's going to actually stop all of this, the long night, everything that's going on, that's going to be Bran. Have you gone back and watched some of the first season episodes? Yeah. See how young everyone is? And he is very prevalent. And in the books, his story was the first we were introduced to. Oh. I just can't get over how young he was then. Yeah. And Arya? He was a little baby. It was most obvious with Rickon because we started off the show with him actually being a very young kid. How long have you been hiding out there? 
Rob will be looking for you to say goodbye. They've all gone away. So I'll be back soon. Rob will free father. And I'll come back with mother. No, they won't. We digress. This is so interesting. We can't help ourselves from jumping ahead. I want to come back for one last piece of information about season seven facts. And that's who's going to be returning and who's not. And we did talk about this last season, starting with directors. We were very sad to hear that both Miguel Sapochnik and Daniel Sackheim will not be returning. And if you listen to our podcast last season, we start off every podcast, especially Game of Thrones, with who the director is. And we get to know their styles and we learned what the next episode is going to feel like based on who's directing it. And these were two of our favorites. Yeah, and so important for the flow of their seasons, like we were talking about before, when you would open up with reintroducing characters, storylines, a lot of intrigue. As you moved on, you would kind of build up a little more with the action. Then you had that penultimate battle. Each director fit into those roles so well. So I can't help but wonder if this is going to shake it up a little bit to have that be different for really the first time, right? Yeah. But it's not completely. Okay, let's not get crazy here. We do have returning Mark Millad, Jeremy Podeswa, and Alan Taylor, who are all Game of Thrones veterans. Now, Alan Taylor hasn't directed in a little while, but he was prominent in season one. He directed episodes nine and ten. And season two, episodes one, two, eight, and ten. He's also done Rome, Deadwood, The Sopranos, Mad Men, and Lost. He's a seasoned vet. And this season, we have a new director coming to Westeros, Matt Shakeman. He's known for It's Always Sunny, Fargo, Mad Men, and House. Christina, you loved House. I love Fargo. Well, yeah. I love Mad Men. And all these shows have in common the rooted storylines, the depth of each storyline, and the ability to pull it off as a director. Yeah, that intelligence that's underneath there. And he has a style all of his own. I'm excited to see what he does with Game of Thrones. We also talked about how there will only be one new major actor that we know of to join this season, Jim Broadbent. And that's in a role that's unconfirmed. He may be playing an archmaster, perhaps Marwyn the Mage, who is an anti-magic, dragon-killing conspiracist. Oh, no. And that would be at the Citadel where Sam is. We heard at the end of last season he was going to be introduced. He was waiting to meet the Archmaster, so this could be that guy. So he's a dragon killer. In the books, yeah. So he was around when dragons were around? Or is he just like self-proclaimed, I've never killed a dragon before, but you know. Yeah, I think he's like. (laughs) When they come, I'm going to be good at that shit. Now we're going to go kill. I'm going to go stick a knife in this motherfucker. I'm going to shake this dragon to death. We're going we're gonna to take his horns or his hide or his teeth or whatever the fuck it is. And, uh, yeah. Oh, you missed. Want to try that again? Oh, fuck. He's anti-dragon for some reason. Maybe he'll team up with Euron Greyjoy. Well, and of course, we're going to have all of our favorite cast members. It would not be the same without them. We got a little bit of information about that. So, Jason, you know our five main cast members as they're listed. Peter Dinklage. Nikolai Kosterwalda, Lena Headey, Amelia Clark, and Kit Harrington. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much they were making per episode last season. I think it was maybe a little under a million. They're so poor. <laughs> but they went into negotiations leading up to this season. I had heard it was increased to a million, a little over a million. 
The latest word was that their salaries were increased to $2.6 million per episode. Wow. For season seven and eight. There's not too many shows that pay that much anymore. To five actors. Yeah. Now, I'm just talking off the top of my head, so I'm not going to know every single one. But I know that the Big Bang Theory, I think they're making a little over a million per episode. And that's a pretty decent group of main cast members. But back in the day, when more people watched television or more people watched certain channels, because there was less of them, there wasn't any internet. We had Seinfeld. They were making a million per episode. Really? Yep. And Friends. Friends, I think there's like five of them. They were making a million per episode. And that was a lot more episodes per season. But this is crazy, especially for nowadays. 2.6 is a lot of money. And yes, it's only five actors that are receiving that salary. But if you think about what they call the second tier, I mean, people that are still really major actors like Sansa, Arya, you have a lot of people in that tier. And then everybody else that's also on the show. So the budget for the cast has to be enormous. Yeah. And we always talk about the budget on the show is astronomical. HBO knows this is their breadwinner. I think, what were they up to? $10 million an episode to, to just produce it last season? That's a lot of money. That's so much money, especially considering that they don't get ad revenue per show. Yeah, it's HBO. So it's, ba- it's based on subscriptions. Now, we know the subscription base does make a lot of money. Netflix is banking it right now so much money yeah i think that even as some of these other things go down a little i mean i don't know that many people that are loyal to the other movie channels i mean showtime had a few shows for a while they were having a good run but nobody comes up against hbo let's go through a few more fun facts we almost lost jessica henwick who plays nymeria sand of dorne one of the sand snakes those of you who watch netflix knows that she was on marvel's netflix show The Iron Fist, which was an awesome show. You didn't watch it with me, but it was great. Netflix has four or five Marvel shows that are coming out that are doing very well. So in Iron Fist, she's like the second main role. And we know Jessica as a kick-ass partner in crime to Danny Rand, played by Finn Jones. And her character's name is Kyleen Wing. She is kick-ass. She knows karate. I won't get into that. (laughs) (laughs) Is it because of that? Like scheduling conflicts that she might not have come back? Yeah. And when you sign with Marvel, there's no playing around. You pretty much sign your life away for like four or five movies. They're like, right away, we got you for five movies. You can't take any jobs that will impede this. This is your main priority. We just talked about the news for Sherlock and how the whole team was saying it was going to be very difficult to do any future seasons with regularity because both Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman are now tied to Marvel. I wouldn't mind being tied to Marvel. During an interview with EW, Jessica said, I wasn't able to do it. My schedule clashed. I was filming Iron Fist for six to seven months, and they wouldn't give me the time off. Game of Thrones was so massive to me in terms of my career and building my profile, and as an experience in itself. I wanted to return. I spoke to Marvel, and I managed to get a release. I literally was flying back and forth while I was doing Iron Fist in New York to Game of Thrones in Belfast, even during Christmas break. This is great. So we got her back for this season. But there's another season coming up. And we know that The Defenders is coming out on Netflix, which is like The Avengers. Okay. All of Netflix's shows that are out there, the heroes are going to join together and fight. And they're all in Manhattan. Oh, wow. Plus, she has more Iron Fist seasons to film. So there's probably no room in her schedule for Game of Thrones season eight. Which leads me to this question. Are the Sand Snakes destined to lose the Game of Thrones? Well... 
we've talked for a while now. What is the future of the Sand Snakes and Dorne in general on TV Game of Thrones? The plot lines seem to be a lot more prevalent and expanded in the books. They've really cut it down. And at the end of last season, we got the shocker that book readers didn't know, which was the death of Prince Doran and Ario Hota. Yeah, I remember that scene. So anything we had been formulating as book readers, ideas, he had all these other plot lines going on that we didn't see on the TV show, that's all moot. And it seems like their future is contingent on the Sand Snakes, and now they're pairing up with Lady Olena and Danny. So I can't really predict where that's going to go, but I don't see them being a main force on their own, only as a part of her army, you know? Yeah, well, we know they're teaming up, but will it be enough? And to be honest with you, that isn't my main concern. I don't care about the throne anymore. We have real troubles, and I don't think the Sand Snakes would be any help at all. I think they'd be cold. They just want revenge. (laughs) That's really been their thing from the start, right? But of course, she could just die off. Wouldn't have to be all the Sand Snakes. Or they could just replace her with another actress. It wouldn't be unheard of. We've had three people play the mountain so far. And I got this interesting prediction from Nerdist. And where they got this from is the Times Magazine Game of Thrones cover story. On our Twitter, we have a picture and a link to the Times Magazine. It's pretty cool. They have the cover and it's all the characters. Sounds like they had a lot of good info. You guys should check that out. The Times writer, who was allowed on set, spoke about how wolves showed up on set. Hmm. And we know that we don't see many wolves. And right now, we, of the ones that are alive, the only one we've seen in a long time is Ghost. Correct. Although we still held out hope for Nymeria. And you've told me in the past that in the book, there's a lot more wolves. And we always do wolf watch. Yeah. We don't get to see many wolves. Well, some of the reason is that showrunners Benioff and Weiss hate dealing with the wolves, <laughs> saying they are the most frustrating creature effects on Game of Thrones. So expensive and so complicated to shoot with. That makes sense. You got these wolves running around. Yeah, they've talked about that before, <laughs> and it still never struck me as an adequate reason to completely X out such a key part of the books and the storyline for Game of Thrones. I mean, the the connection to the wolves and the overall picture seem to be great. Now, maybe in the end, this means they don't really play into the big picture. You know, it was more about the Stark children, which is kind of annoying that we have to know that because they felt it was okay to take them out. But either way, I would have liked to seen a little more. I mean, they spend millions on the dragons. Can't we get a little for the wolves? Yeah, but that's all digital. You can control that. Yeah, I mean, they could have gone more digital with the wolves. I don't think I would have minded that. Well, in this case, multiple wolves were showing up on set. So you have to think it's got to be Nymeria, right? Yeah, you remember our prediction about what would happen to her in the future. We talked about how in the books, she was last seen somewhere in the Riverlands leading her own pack of regular wolves. Mm -hmm. And we thought they were going to come into play for a big battle later on. And in the books, even Arya used to have dreams about Nymeria. They were more like visions. Yeah, wolf So she dreams. has a bond with that wolf, which would be really cool if this happens in the show. It was almost a form of warging, and that's what I meant by they all had some ability. Some of them could actually warg into the wolves. Some of them had what was like a cross between that and green sight where they would have dreams and they would see through the wolf's eyes as though they were the wolf. And what's cool about that is Nymeria was in charge of the pack. In the book, right? Yep. And they would typically attack enemies of the Stark clan. So I'm hoping that during these battles, this will happen. Badass 
yes, wolf fighting. Wolf Watch is alive. We will not let that go. We might be wrong on this, but it's just more fuel for our fire because that's our pet theory. Okay, we're already getting into it, so we might as well talk about it. Next, we're going to dissect all of the information that HBO has given us so far. We got a first short trailer. It was 90 seconds. Some posters, some teaser imagery, and finally, the longer teaser trailer that just came out recently. Now, in the first trailer, we saw hordes of Danny's Dothraki riding into battle, led by a dragon. We saw Queen Cersei striding across a room-sized map of Westeros, ready to take on enemies from every direction, and Jon Snow in the north proclaiming the Great War is here. We also saw Littlefinger creepily staring around a corner. Yes. That was weird. He is up to something. But most of that is not anything we didn't already know. That's typical of the first Game of Thrones trailer, really just to get you hyped for the season. Then we got a poster which showed the blue eyes of the Night King, letting us know he was going to be prominent in season seven. We got that reveal of the premiere date that we talked about last time with the unveiling of the block of ice. But the big news is in the longer trailer. Don't fight in the North or the South. Fight every battle, everywhere. Always in your mind. We're going to go through that step by step. It opens up with Littlefinger saying something to the effect of, you don't fight in the north, the south, you fight every battle always in your mind. That's definitely Littlefinger's way. He's a planner. He creates circumstances. And it has to be him talking to Sansa, right? Trying to teach her as he's been doing about the Game of Thrones. I believe so. Because we also see the two of them moving around the margins of Winterfell. And we assume he's sowing seeds of discord, as he usually does. When we left off with him last season, he was trying to pit Sansa against Jon Snow. Unsuccessfully then, but we don't know if that's going to go anywhere moving forward. I don't think there's any room for Littlefinger anymore. As the Game of Thrones becomes less important, as politics don't mean anything, he is worthless. He can't fight. I don't think he'll be a threat or even alive. I was just going to say, do you think that will mean he dies sometime soon? I think so. We wondered a bit at both Littlefinger and Varys, who were so important in every other season up until now. Varys' last big contribution was really linking up Tyrion with Danny. Now that he's done that, I'm not really sure of Vari's purpose either. So yeah, the two of them, I don't know where that stands in season seven. Now, of course, we saw that even King's Landing is in the grips of winter. We get shots, a few of them, of John, Danny, and Cersei, each assuming their seats of power. We see Arya seems to be riding north from House Frey, where we left off with her murdering Walder at the end of last season. But where to? is the big question. And we're going to hold the Arya thing for a minute. We'll come back to that when we're done with the trailer. We saw an infected arm poking through a door, perhaps Jorah with his advancing grayscale, wildlings running for their lives through a gate in the wall, and a pack of ravens flying in the north. Those are just like quick clips of images. Well, those ravens are being controlled by Bran. We believe, yes. And the Night King sees him. And I think the Night King will always be able to feel him, especially since he grabbed him before. I yeah. think there's a connection there now. 
And unfortunately, this is going to be something that Bran is going to have to figure out. And I hope the king doesn't do too much damage before Bran does figure that out. And we were saying, and we've said it so many times, so I'll just say it quickly. We think that because of this link, when Bran goes through the wall, and we did see a scene of that, that's going to break the magic spell. Yeah, originally we had thought, would it even bring the whole physical wall down? But I don't know that that needs to happen. It just really needs to be the magic yeah. being removed. We've seen these walkers climb super fast. They can climb that wall, no problem. It's ice. It's their element. Yeah, well, and in the Battle of Hardhome, they just piled up the dead bodies of the whites right. as high as they could go to climb over. They could make a human ladder. And all of that with the ravens leads you into multiple shots of John, a lot of which he seems to be rallying the troops and fighting the walkers up north. Is that badass scene when he... <laughs> He's on the battlefield. It kind of is reminiscent of the scene last year when he was fighting in the Battle of the Bastards. He looks so badass. And it's particularly poignant because you have Sansa reciting words in the background. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Very deep. Now, in the books, originally Ned Stark said this to Arya about her sticking together with her sister Sansa. Yeah, when they first came to King's Landing and neither of the children understood the gravity of the situation they were being brought into. He was trying to explain to them that the Lannisters were their common enemy and the family had to be together. But really, that's a bigger message that's going to resound through season seven. Yeah. So who is the pack? And who is the lone wolf? Now, in the trailer, after she says lone wolf, that's when we see that epic scene of Jon Snow in the battlefield. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that's the lone wolf. The words lead you to it, right? Because we started off the entire Game of Thrones with Jon finding the wolf puppies in the woods. And it seemed there were only enough pups for each one of the trueborn sons of Ned Stark until they found this one lone wolf on his own. He was an albino. He was left off kind of separate from the rest of the pack and always different, which is exactly the way John was, a bastard son. Yeah, maybe it's me hoping because I don't want him to die. But if you really look at the way the show has been going, the lone wolf has seemed to be Arya this whole time. Yeah, Arya. But if she's going north, maybe she will meet up with her family. But if it is Arya, that's troubling. But I also think Littlefinger's a lone wolf. Yes, but I don't think we need to worry about him. I think this is going to really be about somebody important and central. Thus far, Arya has kind of never been part of the group. She's been going from one yeah. place to the next, trying to find a place, and eventually just saying, you know what, I'm going to go off on my own, and I'm going to be a lone assassin. And that's when first she went to Walder Frey. And she talked about going to Cersei after that and continuing with her kill list. So most of us thought that would be the next step for her in season seven. Now we will discuss later some of the imagery we've seen makes people want to think she's going north to join up with the Starks. But I don't know that that happens, at least not right away. There is also the possibility that the lone wolf is Bran. Oh, that's true. Yeah. He's been alone for quite some time now and separated from the rest, A, with his physical disability and B, now with his powers, to which it seems like he is the only one and the last one to have any of that. Oh, boy. And speaking of Bran, the next thing we saw is him and Mira waiting to pass through the gate at the wall that leads back to Castle Black. 
and then a shot of him in a wheelchair, seated in front of a weirwood tree. Now, where is this weirwood? Is it at Winterfell? It should be, unless it's one that we're not aware of. Well, we know there's many heart trees. I mean, the one he was at north of the wall with the three-eyed raven was a heart tree. Uncle Benjen left him at a heart tree just north of the wall, which is where he is now, trying to figure out his next move. So it really could be anywhere, but the image sort of looks like the gods would at Winterfell. There's also this older man. We see the back of his head. I don't know who that is. And do you think he went south enough to be in Winterfell? Well, this is the big question, right? Is he going to pass through the wall? Where is he going to go if he dies? I am assuming he must come further south because the shot we see of him is in a wheelchair. He certainly doesn't have one now. I don't think he's getting that north of the wall. It's got to be somebody clever enough to build this for him. So I I think he has to be back with a group of people somewhere. Okay, you also have John saying, For centuries, our families fought together against their common enemy, despite their differences. Together, we need to do the same if we're going to survive, because the enemy is real. It's always been real. And while he speaks, Danny walks through Dragonstone. And this is why they're, they're clever <laughs> how they put words with images. We assume that he's talking to Danny, you know, telling her, Our families don't have to be enemies. You know, you and I, we need to work together because the real threat are the walkers and winter. We know she's going to have to find out sometime soon that that's what's happening here. And you have to believe she must join this battle. And I think it's going to be John that tells her that. But as we said, it seems like she's going to spend a lot of time first at Dragonstone. So instead of immediately going to fight Cersei, she's going to reclaim her family's ancestral seat. This is where their home, their castle used to be. Early on in Game of Thrones, we saw it was Stannis' home because after Robert's rebellion, he took it. And this is the place, if you remember, he has the huge table that has the map of Westeros on it. But the important part about that is it was also rumored to be the place where there was a huge cache of dragonglass buried somewhere. This is the obsidian, the other weapon that we know helps to fight against the White Walkers. And there was a large cache north of the wall, but they lost that, John and Sam. They weren't able to take that back with them when they came south. So now we don't have any more of that weapon. And I don't think it was a mistake that they referenced the rest being on Dragonstone. I think she's going to have to look to find that there and maybe other secrets that could help them in the war. I believe there's a clip when she's in there. She's in kind of like a cave and there's Dragonstone on the walls. Yes, that's true. And she's also pulling down the banners That used to belong to Stannis with the stag and flaming heart. And you see all three dragons flying over the ocean right near Dragonstone. So she's camped out there for a little bit. I'm super excited about this season. It's been a long enough wait. Unfortunately, the next shot is of Tyrion looking very worried. And we don't get too much information about him in the trailer. It's just a couple of shots of him looking scared. I think he's looking at a dragon. I think there's a dragon that smile or snarl that we see, the close-up of the dragon's teeth. You think that was him? Yeah. Oh, wow. But I think it's a conversation, if you can call that, that Tyrion's going to have. And I think this will be the first time we're really going to get to see that there's something about Tyrion and dragons. Does Tyrion have Targaryen blood? And I'm hoping. But the thing is, we've seen him with the other two dragons, and he survived that. Mm -hmm. This particular scene is with Drogon. Mm. They haven't met yet. And 
It might be Drogon measuring him up. Who is this cat? Is he... Fit to consort with my brothers? Or even with Danny. Yeah. I think this is going to be a great scene. I hope it's what I think. It's just them measuring each other up and Tyrion doing his thing, using his words and his body language to communicate with this dragon. And we know that kind of won them over to him last time, enough that he was able to unshackle them when most normal people would have been killed. So I think that would be great if he finally wins their trust to some extent. And speaking of the dragons, we see that they are enormous, looks like pretty much full grown at this point. Badass, very (laughs) scary. Even bigger than what with the books paintings that they have out there. Mm. If you see the size of the people riding it, and the dragons, Danny is even smaller on this guy's neck. Yeah, they show a shot of her, and you, you can't even see her unless you look at the stills where people have stopped the image and zoomed in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's just so tiny on top of them. The next thing we see is the Greyjoy fleet headed for King's Landing. We know this because the Red Keep is in the background. So it seems as though Euron is on the move and will try to form an alliance with Cersei. We talked about that last time. This concerns me. I want Cersei to be written off. Well, first, I want to watch her... Burn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, first, I want to watch her... uh, This is going to sound bad. Breaking down Septa Yunella. Now, we saw it last season. Torturing her. Shame, shame. But we know that she's still alive. Cersei's kind of hiding right now with the mountain. They were in the dungeon torturing her while the Great Sept exploded and Tommen killed himself. So I think we're going to see more of that. And I think they're going to utilize that to show us that Cersei has gone mad. We kind of already saw that at the end of last season. And then the last frame we saw was her in the throne room being crowned as Jamie walked in and gave her this look. And I think the opening scene is going to be that conversation and him finally saying, you've lost it. I would love to think that's going to be the end of them, except that you do see him later riding on this horse in battle, and it seems like fighting for King's Landing, although who knows? I think so, because he has his arrow men shoot arrows, and we see some of Danny's Unsullied getting killed by those arrows. I think you also might see the Dothraki in the background during that scene. Not cool. And a lot of fire. There's just buildings, everything burning behind him. So that means we're going to go back to hating him? I don't want to think that. I want to think that there's going to be one last... He can't leave her alone, but he's really not into it anymore. And I always conjectured that during this battle, he's going to have a showdown with Tyrion. Because Tyrion's going to be on Danny's side. And he's going to realize how wrong he is. That he's fighting for the wrong side. I hope so, but... I don't think so. I don't, I don't know. This is also the shot we have to mention where you see the sword on Jamie's hip that's been talked about a lot. It was in a season seven promo photo, and it seems like this sword is Widow's Whale, and we'll get more into that and all the blades after we talk about the trailer. There's a couple more quick clips. One is of Euron himself attacking a ship. We have to wonder if he's going to be after Yara and Theon, who stole the Iron Fleet from him, and what that's going to look like. There's a shot of a man falling to his knees on a beach, and we don't know who that is. Some people have speculated possibly Theon. And finally, a mysterious figure whose face is cleverly hidden by the sun. Some people are thinking that it's the Hound. Because of the angle of the camera, the figure looks huge. But we've seen clips of the Hound up north on horseback with snow coming down on him. So I, I don't thought think it, it's him. I thought it looked like it could have been Braun. Yeah, mo- most likely From will the be. length of the hair. 
Those were the main points. There's obviously tons of images interspersed throughout there. I know we see gray worm at one point and just quick clips that you you can't quite tell what that's going to mean yet. But we get the sense that Sansa is a big deal right now in the storyline. We see it opens with her, it closes with her. Yeah, and the only people to have dialogue in the trailer are Littlefinger, Sansa, and Jon. Yeah, and we know that we are going to go from hating Jamie, and then we liked him, then we loved him, and now we're going to hate Don't him Don't tell me that. I still want to believe we're going to wind up with Jamie as the good guy. And then with Cersei, I don't know how they managed it, but for a while I felt bad for Cersei, and I was kind of rooting for her. I was like, hell yeah, when she was torturing Septa Yunella. But quickly we're going to ha- end up hating her. I, I like that you bring that up because they did a a real good job. George tried very hard to have you feel some pity for Cersei in the books. It worked. It went more into it because you actually got more of her backstory and things that have happened to her throughout the years. Everything she had to go through made you kind of feel bad. I didn't get that on the TV show because they didn't get into any of that. So <laughs> I always saw her as a bad guy and want to see her taken down. And I still can't wait for the day that Danny walks in there with a dragon. Bye-bye, Cersei. I feel you on the Danny thing. That would be epic. But they haven't really had anything personally together. So it wouldn't mean as much. We would get a better emotional feeling if it's from someone who she's fucked with before. Tyrion. Tyrion. I don't know. I think he'll be up north. I don't know. I don't know if he can kill her. If he's on a dragon. Maybe. Yes. I don't think he could do it up close with either one of his siblings. He killed his father on the shitter. That's true, but it was different with his father. I I really believe that. Because as much as he hates Cersei, remember when Joffrey was dying and the first thing he did was went over and try to comfort her? That's his instinct. They're still his siblings and he always wanted them to be a family, it was them who shunned him. Yeah. What about Sansa? Now, again, I'm talking about what we would get the most emotion out of. I'm not saying that this will probably happen because I don't know. Sansa's going to be up north. I don't yeah, know how that's going to work. Yeah, I don't feel but... that. I would get more emotion from Jamie, Tyrion. Whoa, Jamie. Yeah. Jamie during sex. Oh, God. <laughs> right? That would be epic. I mean, it could. That would take it to a whole new Game of Thrones level. Well, the last thing we got to talk about quickly, we saw Beric with a flaming sword fighting up north. Just to refresh you, there was a lot of Beric and Thoros plotline back in season three. And then last season, we saw Beric prepared to hang Lem and two other members that were raiders that ruined that community that the Hound was with for a while until the Hound comes in and says he wants to hang him himself. That was a great scene. I was like, oh, hell yeah, the Hound's going to team up with them. And remember, in the podcast, maybe a few episodes prior to that, I said, where are they? We haven't seen, heard from them. And then there Eric they and Thoros. Yeah. yeah, you knew they had to come back around. And I didn't see that joining up with the Hound, but neither of them really had a place separately. So it's cool to have them come together and now go up north to fight with John. I love that idea. And you just knew with everything that's going on with the Lord of Light and the idea of resurrection that Beric and Thoros have to meet John. Now, the buzz about all of this is because Thoros is a red priest for the Lord of Light. In case you've forgotten his background, he was a native of the free city of Myr, and he was dispatched to the Seven Kingdoms to convert the Westerosi king, Robert. He soon abandoned his faith and became renowned as a tourney fighter and a carouser. All they did was drink together. 
until he joined Beric on his mission to arrest the mountain and became his right-hand man in the Brotherhood. And throughout that time, he brought Beric back to life five times with his faith. He keeps saying he doesn't know how many more times he can bring him back. How many times is it possible? You know, Beric has to be careful now. That ability is there. So I think it's being brought up because he's going to have to bring somebody else back to life at some point. You speculated that that could be John. Yeah, I believe they're going up north. And in the books, he gives the kiss of life to a different character. Yes, he does, which is a whole side plot that we won't get into, but we did bring it up about Lady Stoneheart. So when he goes up north, I'm thinking that if this whole lone wolf thing is about Jon Snow and he does die, I'm hoping that he will be given life again. I don't know if they're going to give the same character life twice. I don't know. I think it's got to be somebody else. And if they're going to follow it more closely to the book... I don't think we're going to see Lady Stoneheart, but maybe somebody that matches that a little better, maybe Sansa, I'm not sure. And I first got that idea from Charlie at Emergency Awesome, so it's not my original idea. Well, and a lot of people are talking about this. I mean, the big buzz was his flaming sword. He's a serious flamer. <laughs> because <laughs> there's this prophecy that we talked about with the prince that was promised and Azor High come again, he would have this sword that has its own heat and its own light. But clearly Beric's sword is not that, right? It's a regular sword that he lights on fire to go into battle. It looks cool and it's badass, but we're actually talking about a sword that can glow and heat on its own. There was a lot of thought that that could have been Stannis' sword. It did have some kind of glow to it, something that Melisandre was doing. And when he first came to the wall... Maester Eamon asked Sam about it. Describe it to me. Does it have its own heat? Does it have its own light? What does it look like? So even Maester Eamon was wondering, is this Lightbringer the sword that Azor High wields? And of course, Melisandre was on that kick for a long time that Stannis was Azor High. She abandoned that. Now she thinks it's Jon. The story of this sword is long and gruesome. I don't remember all the details, so we won't get into it, but he spent a long time forging it. And it had to be tempered with blood, a sacrifice. So I think he tried an animal first, and that didn't work. Then he tried something else, maybe killed somebody, that didn't work. He finally realized he had to kill his own wife, the love of his life, Nissa Nissa. And it was only by doing that that the sword drank her blood and her energy and became Lightbringer. So if that's something that's going to be repeated on the show, whoever this person is will probably have to make a great sacrifice with their sword, for it to become Lightbringer. So you don't believe what Beric was holding was Lightbringer? Not yet, anyway. But I think in the trailer, he sets it on fire this time on its own. He's holding it and it sets on fire. I'm not saying he can't have some sort of magic from Thoros, the way that Stannis' sword had a little bit of magic from Melisandre, but I think that's different than Lightbringer. Well, what if it is the sword, and he has made sacrifices? He must have, if... The blood god is granting him life again. That's true, but it's not going to just be about the sword. It's going to be about this person that was the prince who was promised. So maybe he gives the sword to somebody else. Or or... he dies and John has the sword. John has to kill him. I don't know. Maybe he's dying and instead of taking his last life, he gives it to Jon Snow, oh, which in effect is John kind of killing him, and he gives him the sword and the life, and now John has the sword. He has Lightbringer. 
that is great because that's pretty much what happened with Corrin Halfhand. Oh. Right? John had to kill Corrin in order to convince the wildlings that he was one of them. And Corrin did that willingly. Like, let's fight. Let's put on a show. They'll really think that you killed me. Right. So it would kind of be a repeat of that. And it's these people realizing that John is meant to be and wanting to help him to get there. And then with that sword in John's hand, it'll be even more powerful. And we did read and hear some theories that by the time season eight comes out, Jon Snow is going to have unbelievable power, Mm. which would be really awesome. So that might be the reason. That makes you wonder, though. I I would have thought if that was going to happen, it's going to be with Longclaw. Because, like, what will happen to Longclaw in that event? But it could be the same thing just with his own sword. This just, I feel so good and happy that we're doing Game of Thrones again. Because what we just went through with this theorizing, we've done many times in the past. And sometimes we were wrong. But sometimes, just us talking like this, we're getting this out of nowhere. We're just talking it out. Mm -hmm. We were dead on. And I was like, what? We figured it out just by talking through it. I'm not too positive if this is true, but if this happens, this particular one, I'm going to be very obnoxiously happy about it. <laughs> well, me too. And it, it's not like it comes from nowhere, right? Because we know that there is a lot of talk about John potentially being the prince that was promised. A lot of people think it's Danny. I have to put that out there because the prophecy was nonspecific for gender, so it could be a woman. But we have no kind of mythos surrounding her with a sword, Whereas John, there's been a lot of sword stuff happening with him, around him. And we know there's a great deal of history behind these Valyrian steel blades. We've talked about this before, but I feel it's important to bring it up again because it's becoming prominent in the storyline. A lot of other people are discussing this. We went through the swords last season that are remaining in the kingdom that we know about, the Valyrian steel blades. When you're down to a couple of weapons that you know are going to help you be able to defeat your enemy, they must be important, right? So there's two we know of, Valyrian steel and dragonglass or obsidian. We've also wondered about things like wildfire, dragonfire itself, but that's not confirmed. Right. Uh, These two are. So we had mentioned before about the dragonglass which is obsidian or frozen fire, as they called it, glass that is sharper than steel but more brittle. In addition to the ones up north, we said it was in Dragonstone. There's also some in Valyria and Ashai, but I doubt that's going to matter to our story. And for blades, we have Longclaw. We just talked about John's blade, which came from the old bear. We have the two blades that came from Ned's sword, Ice. So That was melted down. One became Oathkeeper that Brienne has now. Now, do you think that sword's going to stay with her? I can't imagine, out of all the important people and the very few blades that we have, that this is the end of the story for Oathkeeper. No, I mean, she could definitely do some damage. We know she's a badass. I'm hoping the ethos, the humans, become more aware of the importance of these swords. Mm -hmm. And if they do, if she dies, someone someone else will pick it up. Our... Pet theory, one that I kind of developed at the end of last season when I talked about wanting Jamie to become a good guy. At the time, I hadn't seen these pictures of him with Widow's Whale. And so I said, potentially, he could get Oathkeeper back from Brienne at some point. Not in a bad way, just she gives it back to him. And he winds up having to kill Cersei with it because she is going crazy. (laughs) Uh, It was my theory that it might be him that kills her. 
But that would be really hard because she is the love of his life, much the way Nissa Nissa was the love of Azora High's life. And potentially that could mean Jamie wielding Lightbringer because Oathkeeper would become that now by killing her. Uh, some of these trailer things, and now he's got Widow's Will, doesn't really seem like that, but I'm not going to totally count it out yet. So, of course, yeah, we said we have Widow's Will, and the last part of that, we have the Valyrian Steel Dagger that used to be Littlefinger's, was given to the cat's paw to try to kill Bran in season one. And the big news on this is that we see it now in the promo photos with Arya. She got it somehow, huh? Which makes me right away think she's going to be more important. Yeah, so we saw this in two different places. First, in HBO's affiliate, HBO Nordic, they put out teaser art. And it was an image with a bunch of different kitchen knives and one Valyrian steel dagger. It said, make your kitchen ready, winter is coming. So that got us thinking about it again. And then, in a photo shoot with Entertainment Weekly, it was displayed on Maisie's hip. She was also wearing, in that photo, leather armor that is Starkish. Oh, for sure. And in most promo photos, she's wearing this. I mean, she looks like John there, right? She does. So that's what leads a lot of people to believing she's going back north to join up with her crew. That would be awesome. Lastly, for Valyrian steel blades we know of, there is Heartsbane, which is the Tarly house blade that Sam stole from his father's house. At the end of last season before. I remember that. Going to the Citadel. So Sam the Slayer's got one too. There are a couple more blades that were talked about in the books that have not made appearances on the TV show yet. At least we think. There was Lady Forlorn, which was a Corbray house sword. And they were a vassal house to the Arryns. So John Arryn, the original Hand of the King that died at the beginning of Game of Thrones. If we saw that, we would have thought it would turn up at the Eyrie, and it seems like we've come and gone with the storyline at the Eyrie, so I don't think that will happen. You had Brightroar, which was a Lannister house sword, and that was lost in Valyria. I don't think we're ever going to Valyria, unfortunately. And then you had two Targaryen house swords. One was Blackfire, and the other was Dark Sister, the first of which was lost in the Blackfire Rebellion. Dark Sister, we didn't really know what happened to it. I think everybody assumed that was also lost in the same war. Without getting into too much history, because it's long and I honestly don't know that much about it. I'm not well-versed about the Blackfire Rebellion. But remember how we talked last episode that bastards got last names depending on the region they were from? Yeah, I remember. I lost that quiz. (laughs) So, right. Those from Dorne were called Sand, Nymeria Sand. Every region was like this, and it was sort of named for the geography of the region, except for Targaryen bastards, and they were all called Blackfires. So at some point, they rose up in rebellion for the throne, and it was a big war called the Blackfire Rebellion. The reason I bring this up, there's a whole theory tied into this, and this is another one that we got from Emergency Awesome, I hadn't thought about this because I don't know if I forgot or never realized the true identity of the Three-Eyed Raven, but he was Brynden Rivers, so we come to find out, who was a Targaryen bastard, and he was bequeathed Dark Sister. That sword was given to him. He was part of the Blackfire Rebellion. 
And during that time, when he fought for the throne, he used that sword. He eventually rose to become Hand of the King. They called him Lord Bloodraven. And that's because everybody mistrusted him for his powers. He had green sight even then. And one of the cool connections here is Magor I. He was Maester Aemon's father. Now, you remember the whole story about Maester Aemon, and he tells us that he had the opportunity to be the king once, and he turned it down? This is where that story comes from, because when Magor I died, the throne was supposed to go to Aemon. But in order to avoid more war, he wanted this to stop, he left and took the black instead. When the new king came in, he immediately ordered the execution of Bloodraven, because he had killed another one of the Blackfires. So he took the black too in order to avoid dying. The two of them were there at the wall at the same time. But there was a huge age difference. We know Bloodraven was much, much older. And he became Lord Commander of the Wall. Bloodraven, that is. For 20 years. Yes. After which he went north of the Wall and disappeared. They didn't know what happened to him. We found out he's been living at this weirwood tree the whole time. And the theory is maybe he had the sword with him throughout all of that and took it, and it wound up at the Weirwood tree. Living at the Weirwood tree, becoming the Weirwood tree. (laughs) Yeah. So if the blade was with him, this could be important, because there's a scene where Bran and Mira have to flee from the tree right before Hodor dies in that big battle, where one of the children tells Mira to grab a weapon, and she grabs an old sword. Now, when that scene played out quickly on TV, it's next to a wall of spears. I had just assumed she took another spear because that's what Mira fights with. That's what all of the reeds fight with. Uh, Spears and frog nets. (laughs) It's like this thing from the books. Uh, You have to slow down the image and look at it to see that it's an old blade. And so now they're wondering, was this dark sister... Bloodraven's blade that she took, and perhaps she could now be wielding a Valyrian steel blade. That would be epic because she is there to protect Bran. And if she has a sword that can protect Bran, it would make complete sense. And if we think about this, they're really going to need something. Yes, Bran has powers, but not right now ones that can help fend off White Walkers or anybody else that might attack them. They used to have Hodor who was big and strong. He carried Bran around. He could fight. You had Jojen. Most importantly, you had Summer, who's gone. The two of them are alone and defenseless and could certainly use some help. So that's it for the Valyrian steel blades. We know there were a couple other important blades. There was Dawn that we talked about, the Dane House sword, supposedly made of a fallen star, and of course, Lightbringer. And in the books, Tyrion says, Valyrian steel blades were scarce and costly. Yet thousands remain in the world, perhaps 200 in the Seven Whoa. Kingdoms alone. Oh, I don't know if that's true on the TV show as well, but I think these main ones are the ones we will know about and see again in the future. If Danny's getting this dragon glass, right? What if they make a big ball with dragon glass sticking out and they do a catapult and they're catapulting these big boulders with dragon glass, you know, and it lands... It would kill a lot of them, wouldn't it? That would be amazing. We also wondered if they would tip the spears and say if you had all of the Unsullied with their spears that all had dragon glass on them, and then your main fighters, Danny, John, whoever, (laughs) having the Valyrian steel swords and the dragons and maybe wildfire. I mean, that's got to be enough, right? I just can't imagine the Dothraki 
and the Unsullied surviving in the cold with the little amount of clothes that they wear. (laughs) Well, we talked about that. They're just not used to that kind of weather and that's going to be a problem. I think the whole message of this is it does give us some hope for our heroes. When things seem dim and this is an enemy that's going to be hard to defeat, you look for what do they have on their side. And I know that George R.R. Martin doesn't follow typical tropes. In almost all these stories, the hero has some sort of weapon that's special or magical. And I think that leads to a lot of this talk. You know, I can't wait for the opening sequence of Game of Thrones. And we see the map. The beginning of the season, it's so fun to watch that because we get to see what lands are important this season Mm -hmm. because they only show what's important when that map comes to life. I can't wait for that because you and I are going to be like, okay, we got that. We got that. We don't have this. We talk about that on every review because little things do change. There's been cities added, removed. I'm wondering if we're going to see snow. On the regions in the map now? That would be cool, right? That would be cool. The last thing we learned from promotional stuff is there were some photos of Sam and Gilly that shows them, we think, researching the legend of Azor Ahai. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. The savior who was able to turn back the White Walkers and fight against the Long Night a millennia ago. And we think that return is going to be somebody we know, maybe John, and we wondered what Sam's importance is going to be in this battle. So if it's to find out information about this legend that could help them, that could be a big part of it. Now we have a few more segments to get ready for Game of Thrones. But before we go there, we want to talk to you about our Patreon podcasts. Now, if you love our podcast, we're going to do these weekly after every Game of Thrones. If that's not enough, we have plenty of bonus episodes and movie reviews on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash CKC podcast. There's one bonus episode a month where we talk about fun topics. It's a little more laid back. We get into other areas that aren't just TV and movie reviews. We talk about life. We talk about things that we are really knowledgeable with. And we also have a lot of fun. It's definitely way more laid back. We give you outtakes from these podcasts where (laughs) I make many mistakes (laughs) and make a fool of myself. Definitely big bloopers. It's a lot more interactive with our listeners. The Clatchers write in. We respond to that. We base some of our topics off of it. And for the second podcast, we do one movie review a month. And that is very much based on whatever the Patreon members want to see. A movie that's big in the theaters right now, sometimes a throwback to a classic. And we do a lot of research for that. A lot of research. We get the lowdown in every movie. We talk about actors, behind-the-scenes stories, directors, the makings of the movies, what went wrong, what went well. It's a blast. You also get many other things with that. You get a private message board where you talk with us and the Clatchers alone. You get 10% off our store. And we're even thinking about doing a live chat soon where our Clatchers will be able to talk to us via Patreon live. And we will discuss all of our favorite shows. Yeah, we always planned on adding another tier. So there are three tiers right now. Whatever amount you can pledge, there should be something that matches that in there for you. And once we hit a certain amount of Patreon members, that's when hopefully we will be adding this next level, which most likely will be the chat. So only you can make that happen. Go check out the Patreon. Join the crew. You can even go to coffeeclatchcrew.com. You can get more information about our podcast, about Christina and myself, and links to the Patreon and the store. 
Yes, and if you want to contribute in some way and support the podcast, but you're not able to do a monthly Patreon membership, there is a donate button on the CKC website, and we would very much appreciate anything you would be able and want to offer. The final thing we have to talk about are the spinoffs, right? Because this is a big topic lately. There's been a lot of buzz. Once the main Game of Thrones show ends, what would come next? Yeah. For a long time, we thought it was going to be multiple spinoffs, as in four or five, primarily prequels, that would go back really far, let's say, to the Targaryens, the Blackfyre Rebellion, or perhaps another that would be not as far and would talk about Robert's Rebellion. There were a lot of topics under consideration, and people were just going crazy, writing articles, speculating about all this. But in the latest news, the HBO president of programming, Casey Bloys, spoke with Entertainment Weekly about the Game of Thrones shows. They said while there were plans to develop four to five spin-off series, with screenwriter Brian Hegeland among the leading writers and staff in collaboration with Martin, and they were weighing five possible ideas as the foundation for the prequel, more than likely only one series would make it to air. So we're talking about one, probably, not four or five. I like that story better. Because four or five, more likely, they're not going to be as good. They're going to be trying to do too much, and we're going to say they're trying to capitalize on the success. Mm -hmm. But if you have one, the most important one that they can really work on, and we know that George R.R. Martin is part of it, it's going to be good. So this makes sense. They were taking these four or five ideas, putting the best ones forward, and now they're going to pick out of that which one will get produced. The other news is it is also now unlikely that D.B. Weiss and David Benioff will produce for a while, there was a lot of talk of that it. they were connected to this, but they said they want to enjoy this new show as fans. Yeah, and I understand where they're coming from. They also said that if their names are associated with it by any means, even if it's on the lower end and they're not the main producers, but they're part of it, they feel that expectations will be too high and it'll be compared mm. too much. But as I do understand where they're coming from, it's going to be compared anyways because it's Game of Thrones. Yeah, but they've worked their asses off for eight seasons. Well, will be eight seasons when they're done. I think they want to sit back and relax the way they started out as Game of Thrones fans. There's also no timeline for the development of the projects. We don't know what we're looking at or when it might come out. But some of the names that have been attached to potential writers were Max Bornstein, who did Kong Skull Island, Jane Goldman, who did Kingsman, Brian Hegelin, as we just said, who did Legend, and Carly Rae, who's done Mad Men and Leftovers. And about this, Martin has said, what we are talking about are new stories set in the secondary universe of Westeros and the world beyond. Speaking of, he has reassured fans that he will complete the sixth novel despite working with the screenwriters on the spinoffs. But he has admitted the TV commitments have pushed the book back down on the agenda again. Yes, I am still working on Winds of Winter, and I will continue working on it until it's done. But also some people are worried that it's not going to be finished, from what I um, read in the... I mean, there is the possibility, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but... Um, well, I find that question, you know, pretty offensive, frankly, when people start yeah. speculating about my death and my health, so... Yeah, yeah. Fuck you to those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is that fans have already waited almost six years for the next installment... He said, I will confess I do wish I could clone myself or find a way to squeeze more hours into the day. But this is what it is, so I just keep juggling. And he also has stressed that he's really working on his screenwritings because he doesn't want the show to, again, extend past what he's written. 
So he's making sure that he gets all that done and completed before the show even gets greenlit. I understand all of that, but the first commitment was always to these books, you know, and then it was the show and then all of the other things, the Comic-Cons, the interviews, and now it's the spinoffs. And it's yeah. like, when are we going to get back to the very first, <laughs> most important matter of the books? And I could see both of them not being finished before the series ends. In fact, I totally get, as a writer, book eight, the final word he wants to have once the TV show is done. Right. And, and he gets the final say on his creation. But this one, The Winds of Winter, I don't know what the delay is with that. You're you speaking... Ha- you have to figure that he's done writing. You're it. so passionate and, and you're one of the book readers. Mm-hmm. And I get the passion. But put yourself in his shoes. These aren't easy books to write. And he's finally making super duper money. What would you do, Chris? Oh, absolutely. If it was to be written. So if he legit has not finished writing The Winds of Winter, then I I definitely understand. But I can't imagine that that book isn't done yet. Maybe the pressure's too much now because everyone expects it to be awesome. And now he's like, everyone's watching. Now I'm going to get compared to the TV show. Uh, probably not. He probably doesn't that's give a shit. That's definitely a factor, <laughs> but I listen, I think the book fans or the book fans, that's going to be the Bible no matter what it is. They're going to love it. It's going to be canon. And and I do think after all this time, that book is probably close to being done. The Bible. Are you saying it's going to be the new Scientology? <laughs> People have asked, will the prequel be about Robert's Rebellion? And we have found out that it's a definite no. It's not going to be. And I think that's because we're going to continue to see Robert's Rebellion flashbacks in this show. I agree that you might get some through Bran, but Bran has a lot of stories that he could and might need to tell with these flashbacks, and there's only so much of that they can do. Yeah. I think for the important information from the Rebellion, we've probably already gotten it. So unfortunately, I don't think you're going to see that much more. I think they're going to get a whole new cast. It's going to have nothing to do with the current Game of Thrones, and the reasons are for many. One, he can start from scratch and start another whole new storyline. And two, maybe the if they tried to bring back some actors, maybe they would be super expensive. It probably would be. The thing is, I think that's what most TV watchers only would want to see. I'm sure there's other topics book readers are interested in, but... You, for instance, not knowing anything about the Blackfire Rebellion, that probably doesn't intrigue you. Whereas if we're talking about Robert's Rebellion, and you can picture characters like the Mad King and Rhaegar and Robert and Ned being in it, now you're excited. Oh, yeah, because we would know something about it, and we would be able to look back. That's how Marvel's doing so well, because all these storylines link link up with each other, and we're like, oh, I know that because of this, this, and I get that, but... At the same time, I knew nothing about Game of Thrones except for the fact that you were reading the books and you loved it when we started watching it, and now I'm hooked. Well, and I also think what could be smart is to save Robert's Rebellion for later. Many years later, when we want to come back and make a Game of Thrones resurgence, then you do the original prequel, what came right before GOT. Oh, nice. That might be a good time. Well, that's all the information we have for now. This gets me so excited. I can't wait. Before we know it, it'll be the premiere for season seven. When that premiere comes out, we'll be starting our weekly podcast. We'll do it most likely two days after the show airs. Second day, we do vast notes. 
and record. And then the third day after, we will release it, uh, edit it, and release it. Yeah, Jason's making promises. We can't say definitively two days every single time, but we're going to try to keep it as close to that as we can. We want to give you the best possible product. We do our research. We try to get things that aren't obvious. And when you do that and you also have real jobs, it takes a little longer. Real jobs. Jason, I have four other real jobs. True. Same here. (laughs) But Game of Thrones is my love. I'm really excited to be doing the episode reviews again. And as always, we welcome the Clatcher feedback. So as we go along, if you have thoughts, please feel free to write in. You can write to us on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, Facebook, Coffee Clatch Crew. We have a contact page on our website, coffeeclatchcrew.com, or just email us, contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. Write to us. Tell us now, before the show even starts, do you have any predictions? Do you have any questions? Do you have any theories? Let us know, and we will talk about it on the next podcast. The biggest ones being, will there be an Azor High, and if so, which character? Who will wield Lightbringer? Where is that sword going to come from? Who's going to kill Cersei is another one we brought up. Will we get the Clegane Bowl? And is Arya going south to continue her kill list with Cersei or up north to rejoin the Starks? So we'll see you in a little over a week. If you really enjoyed this podcast, be sure to tell your friends about it. Get them listening, and this way you can all join up in the conversation. Thank you so much to Third Wave Water for promoting this podcast. If you ever want to have that perfect cup of coffee from your home and not have to worry about the expensive beans or getting that $600 machine that you don't even know how to use. Well, Jason, don't act like it's actually magic. You still do need coffee beans, okay? But this is going to help you get your water perfect. The product comes in a box with individual packets, and they have minerals in them. So you add the packet to a gallon of distilled water, and now you're ready to make brewing magic. So I don't even have to measure. (laughs) That's true. Third Wave Water makes it easy for you. If you're a coffee lover, you know that the quality of the water affects the way your coffee tastes. This is a no-brainer for as little as 10 cents per cup. We've tried it. We can attest to it. Just go to thirdwavewater.com and use the promotional code CLATCH for 10% off your first order. That's promo code CLATCH, K-L-A-T-C-H, for 10% off. Until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me! Try again.